for coming. Um, I was very much looking forward to coming back to Oxford, where I, as John said, had studied uh, some time ago. Um, I did my, my DPhil in history here, um, and um, then became a journalist. I'm not sure what that says about me, but there you go. Um, I thought I'll begin by uh, introducing to you to, to Dietzide. Um, here it is. Glorious thing, unruly beast. Um, and um, I'd like to have a look. Um, uh, unusual, I suppose, in, in, in many ways, as a, as a newspaper because it's a weekly, uh, published on Thursdays. Um, and um, so it sort of sits, it sits somewhere uh, in a niche, somewhere between the, the dailies and the, and the news magazines. Um, politically, I suppose it can be uh, classed as emphatically liberal. Um, there's no official editorial uh, position, so uh, journalists are free to argue whichever side of the argument they like. Although it's probably true that you can feel a bit lonely, as I know from my own experience, if you find yourself slightly on the right of the, of, 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 of the center. Um, what Dietzai shares with broadsheets um, in Germany is a reputation for extremely serious sometimes stern, usually very worthy, often um, very worthy political journalism. Um, it's essentially the kind of reporting that befits the stereotype of the square-jawed humorless Germans, if you like. Um, and of course, it lies in the nature of a weekly uh, to focus less on the, on the news, um, but more uh, on analysis, um, plenty of commentary, reportage, extensive interviews, um, and even something as old-fashioned as the political essay. Um, all heavy-duty stuff, in other words. Long text codes, not much color for the eyes for the rest of um, And um, the caricature of Dietzide Vida is a middle-aged, middle-class, university-educated, opinionated, small-town German who puts his academic title in his email address. <laughs> 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 You'll meet one of them later. Um, now, all of that makes finding a British equivalent uh, quite difficult, but if you want to take a pick, I guess the observer would be perhaps your best bet. Although, of course, in terms of circulation, um, the two, the two uh, don't really compare very easily because the observer, um, I think, has followed the downward trend for some time now. Um, I looked it up, it's standard since 225,000 copies a week. Uh, where circulation of each site has been increasing for many years and currently stands at 518,000, which indicates that perhaps we do manage to reach a leadership beyond the caricature of that small town academic. Uh, but maybe we, we have time to talk about um, what's behind the success of this, um, of this sort of rather pompous looking thing. Um, what I want to talk about today is um, how the reporting has changed over the last 11 years since I started. Uh, and how it's changed, of course, not so much in terms of its contents, but in terms of what I think it needs to achieve and what is, has become clear to me, what it is that the reader demands. Um, because that, of course, um, changed quite drastically with um, first the financial crisis and then later on the crisis in the Eurozone. So what we've got is 
in a way, of course, with the perfect storm. Um, the crisis in the Eurozone, the political crisis um, in Europe, um, sparked a confidence, a question of confidence in the whole project, not just in countries who received bailout money on the fringes, but uh, throughout Europe, not least uh, in Britain, of course, where conservative backbenchers seem hell-bent to embarrass their prime minister at every opportunity and have the exit door firmly inside. Now, when I started writing from England, uh, writing uh, home from England, um, I quickly realized that one main challenge was that actually the readers, as well as my editors, had a very clear idea about Britain already. It is, yeah, it is so close and so familiar, and everybody knows everything they actually want to know, possibly want to know about it. A friend of mine is currently opening the Insights Brazil office in Rio. He said he couldn't wait to actually go to a, to a sort of dark corner of the world and, and just file story after story, and every, every you know, they, they would all be lapped up because no one knows all that much about Brazil. But what we do know is that it's becoming increasingly important. Um, so if you started writing from Britain, that's, that's of course, uh, slightly different because everyone has formed their opinion already. Um, now, what I've found, though, in the last few, especially the last two years, um, when the debate over Europe um, uh, has erupted here, um, that, of course, it turns out that two sides don't really know each other. Um, and increasingly, um, I have a sense that there is a sort of a dialogue of the death between uh, Britons and Germans. Um, and, um, you know, with, with a sort of increasingly entrenched and, and naturally over-simplistic theories about, about the other. Um, and then I think that raises the game slightly for foreign correspondents. Um, because there is a role, perhaps, to, uh, to do a little bit to influence bilateral relations between two countries. But uh, that's one of the things I'd like to discuss with you later. Um, let me quickly go back to 2001, when I started just after 9-11. Remember those days when Britain was cool? Yes, Britannia. <laughs> um, New Labour had recently been re-elected, I think that was in June, wasn't it? Um, there's vision of a new social democracy was even more firmly established, uh, and the third way seemed uh, like a universal <coughs> template that guaranteed steady economic growth and increased social justice. Um, Remarkably, the collapse of the dot-com bubble badly affected UK growth, and although Gordon Brown soon published his five economic tests, which ruled out British membership of the euro, Britain continued to engage constructively with its European partners. Germany, at the same time, under the chancellorship of Gertrude's Social Democratic Party, was part of this sort of international brotherhood of the third way. Um, and, and so in that sense, there was almost a a sense of euphoria in, in, in Anglo-German relations, um, as the two governments seem to agree on almost anything, including the need, uh, importantly of course, including the need for military action of, in Afghanistan. The difference though was that the Germany, Germany economy suffered sluggish growth and high unemployment at a time when the Schroeder uh, administration pushed through very difficult labor reforms. So while in a way both countries then were in transformation, in transition, um, but London was ahead. London seemed 
sort of hotbed of new ideas and political initiatives when, whereas Germany was sort of laboring quite hard to introduce changes. Um, but my predecessor um, and, and other colleagues have actually have told me that that was the most exciting time to, uh, to be a, a correspondent in London. And, and looking back, um, I, can, I can only agree. So um, the stories I wrote at the time, uh, at the times were, for instance, I remember going to a prison in Birmingham to write about the new public finance initiative. Um, I was at the Sure Start Centre in East London, which uh, was touted as the way forward for to overcome social and ethnic segregation in the city. Um, and Business News EasyJet took off and launched a new era of no-frills air travel in Europe. Tate Modern opened, uh, became an instant success. On uh, at the National Theatre in London, Michael Frank's play Democracy uh, about the West German Chancellor Willy Brandt and his private secretary, Günther Guillaume, who turned out to be an East German spy. Such new plays told stories um, that were for once and for the first time not about the war. So <laughs> Germans were actually absolutely enthralled with, with Britain. Um, and Kuhl Britannia really she was engaging with Germany in a, in a different way. Um, at the same time, um, Britain, of course, continued to deliver the kind of stories that fit the English cliches of German readers. And one of the most popular stories I filed um, was about the Marcus of Bath. Um, who, if you haven't come across him, look him up. He is really a colourful uh, chap. An aristocrat who runs a safari park in the grounds of his uh, enormous pile, Longleat. Um, when I met him, he was of long hair. A colourful gowns, and he told me how he tried to enter the House of Lords barefoot when he inherited the seat from his father and stopped at the door. He, just, he simply wasn't wearing shoes in those days. Um, so he, I think he, he, he was given slippers to uh, shuffle around the corridors of the Lords. So, um, a, a shrewd and extremely successful businessman, as well as um, the archetypal English eccentric. Um, those were the, really essentially the two different types of stories that I would file, the in-depth report and analysis of you know, all kinds of political, economic, and social change, and the lighter reportage, which uh, sort of to pick up stereotypes and, uh, and confirm what the reader's ideas of what Britain were. One thing I noticed that was different in the way I approached my work um, was different from English journalists and, and British uh, colleagues in, in, in Germany, was that um, there seemed to be a greater deal of freedom uh, that, that I enjoyed. Um, they, uh, my colleagues frequently complain about the editors ringing them up and saying, right, this is, this is the story I want. Can you go out and find the facts and write a piece? Um, Whereas I would start with the facts and then, and then construct my argument. Um, I remember a few years ago, the manager of a, the, the editor of a conservative magazine rang me up and asked if I could write a piece for them about the Euro-weary German middle classes who want the Deutschmark back. And I said to him, well, it's kind of sense. It makes a lot of sense to want to print such a piece, but that political groundswell doesn't really exist in Germany. <laughs> Uh, got someone else to write something similar. <laughs> anyway, that was then. The way I write home today is very different in many ways, indeed. Um, it all began with the financial crash in 2008, 
and when the really the truly spectacular collapse of the British banking system exposed some fundamental differences between Britain and Germany that of course had not been quite so obvious beforehand um, but that left many of, of our readers truly shocked um, now I found this letter from a reader in Oxford dated 15 September 2008 Dear Sirs I've been an Anglophile all my life. I studied English at Heidelberg University. I read Shakespeare, Chaucer, Trollope, Wordsworth, Tolkien, and Raleigh. I've spent most of my holidays in the British Isles. Cornwall, the Brecon Beacons, the Lake District, the Highlands, and the Hebrides. I thought I understand the British, but it turns out I don't. <laughs> the mother of all modern democracy seems rotten to the core. The England I know is a European country that shares European values of liberal democracy and social justice. The England I've been reading about in your paper for the last few years allowed Tony Blair to enter into an illegal war in Iraq and not only sanctioned but promoted aggressive Anglo-Saxon capitalism, a system where a handful of greedy bankers was allowed to gamble with people's hard-earned cash to enrich themselves, and now they've brought down the entire economy. I don't get it. <laughs> I was an Anglophile once. Yours faithfully. Dr. Dietrich Berger. <laughs> Where do you begin? <laughs> this man is clearly in distress. <laughs> but what's interesting about it, I think, is that this extreme emotional reaction is actually not common among readers. And it's a bit like it's a bit like I think many Europeans when they hear stories about massacres in American schools and they and they follow the debate of, of the gun control in America. It's very difficult to get your head around the kind of the frame of mind and the, the thinking that, that is involved in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the gun lobby in America and why, uh, why how it is so powerful. And, well, and, and traditionally Anglophile, a nation like, like, uh, like the Germans, that is in a way how, um, how they feel at the moment. But as long as relationships were, were fine and, and, and governments were singing from the same hymn sheet, that could uh, quite easily be glossed over. Um, but now it's become it's become sort of more fundamental and therefore more difficult. I remember the German government um, was very keen to put the regulation of hedge funds on the agenda of the G8 summit in Germany in, in 2007. Um, that was torpedoed by Gordon Brown. And Berlin showed my invitation about it. 18 months later, after the crash, that was picked up and actually became a huge uh, sort of, sort of scandalized by, 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 by politicians and the, and, and the press. And although the German banking system, and more importantly the German taxpayer, escaped the financial crash relatively unscathed, um, there was a sense of shock and disbelief at the scale of the crisis in America. And with that, the German attitudes towards Britain have changed. And um, especially now with the Eurozone uh, and the debate in Britain over, over her future in, in Europe, what I encounter in Germany is actually nothing short of a sense of betrayal. Um, you know, having been grumpy and reticent, members of the EU was fine. You know, one could, one could deal with that. But to abandon Europe completely seems sort of unfathomable. And, and, and that's um, where I and other German correspondents in London uh, can come in, perhaps. Because instead of writing long letters or sending quaint uh, postcards about 
large uh, uh, eccentric aristocrats. And what we have to do more and more now is to try and explain the rich frame of mind, the psychology of a nation, a nation gone mad, as far as the Germans are told. That's what I see it. Um, not really, and, and, and I think that's, that's becoming even more important as the political rift between London and, and Berlin has actually uh, increased. And, um, you realize that civil servants um, and peace do, do not talk to each other in the, in the way that they used to. And instead, Cameron and his rebellious anti-European backbenchers are being ridiculed in Berlin. And there's a sense of, well, you know, let them, let them. Um, I spoke to a German MP last week who, who asked me about this, and Nigel Farage guy, how come this clown is so popular with the British electorate in this point you know? They must have a death wish if they follow him and leave Europe. Because one thing is clear, if they exit, they will drown. And that's it. Now, I'm firmly of the belief that Britain needs Europe as much as Britain matters for Europe. Um, and I think it's important for journalists like me to acknowledge that they can play, if only a minor, but they can play a small role in, in liaising uh, between the two countries. Um, and whilst it's true that Europe is in crisis, so too is Britain. Um, with the uh, recovery uh, uh, dragging its heels and, and um, the budget deficit not sorted out for another two or three years at least. So instead of, uh, instead of walking away, I think um, we should get people to understand each other better, get them to talk, and ultimately um, perhaps make changes to the European construct that, that can benefit everybody. Otherwise, it seems to me this would be a crisis wasted. Thank you.